Good morning. I think I need to explain something to you. I love you all, and I love you all enough not to shake your hand when I got a cold. So I'm not trying to be uh, standoffish or anything, but because I've had a few people wonder why I try to tell them what's going on. But that's what's going on. <clears throat> I love you anyway. If you love me enough, you can take my hand if you want to. We're going to be talking today about be the church that is alive. And uh, the, the interesting thing that we need to realize is that all of us are walking in a direction. That's just the way the world works. Some people like to think the world's a big circle. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we're heading somewhere, that we're, we're heading to a destination. And that destination is uh, one of two places, either heaven or hell. And the bottom line is that the direction we're walking helps determine that. We need to stop and think about what we're doing in our life. What we need to do is we need to realize that there's one source of faith and practice. That, that source of faith and practice is the Word of God. It's God Himself. He's proclaimed who He is. He proclaims what we need to do to be in relationship with Him. He tells us how to do that. In marriage counseling, oftentimes we use this illustration. When people are having problems, oftentimes you, if you were to draw a little diagram of that, you would see that at times they come close together. At other times one goes over here and the other one goes over there, and then they're close together and out and out and all around. But if you think about it, if you both put God as your source of reference and you're both striving to serve God, then what's going to happen? Well, you're going to come together. You're going to come closer and closer. That's the way it is with, with our relationship with God. If we focus on Him, on trying to do what He says, then we're going to be walking towards Him each day of our life. Does that mean that on occasion we not, might not stumble? Yeah, we'll stumble in the journey. But we want to be focusing on the source of faith in our life, the purpose for living. So let's turn over to Ephesians uh, chapter 2, 1 through 7. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, and once you, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But listen to the good news here. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even in, when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us, Christ Jesus. <coughs> so we see here a contrast between who we once were and who we are in Christ. And we can see that this contrast is very great. And so... As Christians, we need to understand that those who are alive in Christ are changed. 
We're not going to be like we used to be. We're not, we're not the same person that we used to be. We're not going to act in the same way. We're not going to walk according to the course of this world, as it says, according to the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan himself. We're going to walk in a different way. We're going to be walking in a different direction. Without Christ, we're walking towards destruction. It's very important to get a hold of that. And, and I'm, I imagine most of us here today are, are Christians. We understand who Christ is. We believe in Christ. But, you know, there's people out there in the world around us that, that don't, that don't understand it, and they don't even realize that they're heading in a, in a place that will cause destruction for them. This is not an uncommon thing for people to walk in the wrong way, walk in the wrong direction. As we look at, at Scripture, we could look in the Old Testament, we could see that uh, the people of Israel oftentimes refused to walk in the direction that God called them to, that he had shown them. And that's really the history of the Old Testament. If you read it, you're going to see that the history just proclaims one episode after another. They, they believed in God. They followed God. The next generation chose to follow idols. They, they repented, came back to God. The next generation followed God and vice, back and forth, back and forth. Paul kind of refers to this in Romans 7 when he talks about the good that he would, he do not, that which is evil he does. And so there's this struggle within his life, trying to do the right thing and, and sometimes doing the wrong thing. And then Romans 8, he makes sure that we understand that the only way we're going to do the right thing is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you might want to go home and read those two chapters and you'll begin to see that this is a struggle that we face in life. In the Old Testament, probably the best example, one of the best examples I could think of, is when the people of, of uh, Israel were freed from Egypt. They were told to go into the promised land and occupy it. <clears throat> God said he would go before them. He would drive out their enemies before them, and, and that he would, he would give them the land that he promised them. And instead of going, they became fearful. It seemed easier not to do what God said. So we pick this up in Numbers 13. We're going to look at verse 30. Moses had sent 12 spies into the promised land, and uh, the spies came back, and 10 of them reported that they couldn't do it, and two said they could. And listen to what it says here. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Now, you know, he's probably right. They're, they're wrong. They're right. Those people might have been stronger than they are. Satan is stronger than we are. We can't fight him on our own. We need the support of God, the Holy Spirit living in us if we're going to have victory in the struggle we have with, with sin. But, but it goes on, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so 
we were in their sight. Grasshoppers. I won't tell you about things I used to do to grasshoppers when I was a little kid. I'm sure some of you guys can share the same stories. But, you know, a grasshopper is not a very powerful animal. It's an insect, I, I realize that. Uh, that. That we would see ourselves as being that weak. That we, we have no choice. The thing is, is that God is not weak. And God is walking with us. And so God determined, since they refused to go, since they were making excuses of not to go, that he was, that he was going to punish them. Because they walked in the wrong direction. You look here in Numbers um, chapter 14, verse 34. It says, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Now the men whom Moses spied, sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the, of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died in the plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jehoshaphat, remained alive of the people who went to spy out the land. So he punished those that rejected him, but those that followed him, Caleb and Joshua, lived to enter the promised land at a later date. And so we can see that we need to accept God's teaching, and we need to be walking towards God, not away from God. And that is the critical thought here. It's easy sometimes to go with the crowd. You look at the world around us, and there, there's so much, so many things that are out there that are being taught that are just totally contrasted from one another, from one extreme to the other extreme. You know, that, that's going on all around us. And I know that, that Christians are often looked at as being the extreme ones. Because we stand for what the Bible says, and the Bible stands against many things that our culture is saying, okay. You know, abortion is one of them. There's big discussion about this nowadays. There's all kinds of things that the Bible teaches as being wrong that people are fighting about and arguing about. This is, this is the way the world is. And so sometimes it's easier just to go with the crowd. It's easier than standing up for Jesus. Let's bring this into the New Testament. Now, we have all kinds of opportunities to stand up for Jesus. I'll bet you that if you have a job, you probably had opportunity this week to stand up for him, to show your faith, to speak out, and to, to stand for what is correct as opposed to taking up the path of least resistance. If we look at the trial of Jesus, we can see that this took place during that trial. That the people who had proclaimed Jesus as their Messiah, as their king, were, were suddenly challenged. And so they chose to take an easier route. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the world, were, were saying, this, this Jesus is not who he says he is. He's not, he's not the one that you think. He's not the Messiah. He's, not, he's a liar. 
And so they convinced the very people who had come out to embrace Jesus as their king to ask for him to be crucified. If you look over here in Matthew, or Mark, excuse me, 15, we're going to start here in verse 6. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. Jesus had come to trial before Pilate. The custom of the day was that he could release a prisoner to them. And so they had to make a choice here. They could, they could ask for Jesus, or they could take a different path. And listen to what happens. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude cried out, crying out began to ask him, do you him to do just as he had always done for them? But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to re release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. He knew that there was no basis for this trial or, or for the death of Jesus. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with this with him who you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to him, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them and delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. See, they went with what they thought was the least path of resistance, the easiest way for them to go. And so as a result, they turned their back on, on Jesus Christ. And see, I, I would say this, that some of us find it easier to crucify Jesus than to follow him. Now that's harsh, isn't it? That's a harsh thing to say. But do you ever think about that? That some of the things that we do Jesus had to die for. Some of the times that we refuse to speak up, Jesus died for that. That's a sin, you see. Not to speak the truth, but to, to go with the way of the world. And sometimes we just have to realize that I need to be more obedient to the word. Because Jesus demands more from us Jesus doesn't want us to take the path of least resistance. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't ask us to do that. He challenges us to do more. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, and, and it says this, And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who fi finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Oftentimes, we're trying to protect ourselves. We're all guilty of that. And we forget that there's something more at stake. There's something greater to do for the kingdom of God. See, there is a spirit of disobedience without Christ. And Satan does use that against us. He's the prince of this world. And what does that mean? It means that he has power in this world, and his ways seem easier. That's really what this angel of light does. 
as he, he's, as he presents a path that seems easier, you know, instead of the narrow and crooked path, the hard path, it's the broad path. And so it seems easier to follow him. Even when Jesus was being tempted in the 40 days that he fasted in the wilderness, the last temptation was, you know, Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these things, the kingdoms of the earth, all those things. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so Satan uses that against us as well. He wants to influence us, influence us in many ways. Now, how he influences each of us could be different. Christ wasn't easily tempted, see, so he offered him everything. But we can be tempted that way for little things. You know, could, could uh, a snowmobile or a hunting rifle keep us away from Jesus Christ? It could, if we chose to do that. If we let it become domineering in our life and overpowering in our life to where we're gone, away from the kingdom, away from the, the work of the Lord for great periods of time. If there's anything that can come into our life, we've got to recognize that these temptations come and they can cause us to, to go down the wrong path. They're the, probably one of the biggest temptations is exactly the one that he used on him. He, he had used other temptations as well there in Matthew 4. But the one of, of uh, the idea of, of wealth, of materialistic things being more important than spiritual things, Again, you can be greatly blessed and not, not be falling for that, but you can be very poor and be falling for that very temptation. You see that? So you've got to kind of know your heart. You've got to be open before God in order to understand that there is a battle going on. And sometimes because we don't know, we do things out of ignorance. Can you remember... Uh, Parents raising your, your kids, the, the two-year-old in the light socket, light plug-in switch or whatever. You, can, can you remember that? How many of you ever had that experience with your two-year-old? That, that, you know, they want to put their finger in that outlet no matter what. <laughs> See, everybody raised their hand. Well, they, Why? Well, they don't know any better, but you've told them, don't do that. So there's this, even in a little child like that, there's this little bit of disobedience. That doesn't mean that little child's doomed to destruction, but it means that they know about that. So there's that instance where they'll just kind of keep playing around, and eventually maybe they get their finger in there, and they realize, hey, that, oh, I get what uh, mom and dad were talking about now. You know, or the stove, the same thing. So ignorance can cause us to do things that are hurtful to ourselves. And that's where God's word comes in. But then there's a later time. How many of you have ever had a teenager in your family who was out with their friends and didn't get home on time when you told them to? Now, see, that wasn't for lack of understanding. That was disobedience. There's a difference, right? There's a difference. Both cause harm, but one is willful. And we have to realize that we can't go through life being willfully disobedient to God. God calls us to something better. 
That's how we once were. When we slip back into that, we're living under our old nature, not under the nature of a new being, which we are. So those who are alive in Christ walk a diff- on a different path. And that path is the acceptance of God's grace. See, do you notice that this talks about every one of us is like this? Read those first three verses again when you get home and just think about that. And so it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he loves us where we're at. That's the beautiful thing about God. He loves us where we're at. He sent a Savior to to reach us where we're at. And where we're at right now is we're under grace. He's offering us grace. He's offering us mercy right now. But we have to accept that. Even when we're dead in trespasses, we made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we look at this. And what we need to understand and get a hold of, and sometimes it's also difficult for us, is that we all need mercy. We all need grace. There's not one of us here that doesn't need that. But yet people sometimes don't think so. I'm I'm sure that you talk to some of your friends and they tell you, well, I don't need that. I don't need somebody to die for me. I don't need a church. I don't don't need the Bible. You know, there, there are many people that believe this. That seems foreign to believers, but it's true. But sometimes even within the body, we kind of forget the idea that we need grace. We all make mistakes, right? Turn over to Luke uh, chapter 7. Some Pharisees decided to invite Jesus over to their house, and and, uh, some events took place, and uh, these Pharisees became very judgmental towards Jesus. And and in verse 40 here it says, And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Now, it makes sense that, that if you've been forgiven much, you, you, you appreciate it more. But there's a deeper meaning here as well that I think we need to get a hold of. It's, it's, it's an interesting question. Which of them will love him more? Isn't this a question we should also ask ourselves? Maybe the person that should love him more is the person that's forgiven to begin with. Because I think sometimes we think of it like that. They're worse than me. And you forgave them. 
You know, it should be easy for you to forgive me. But what did Jesus have to do? He had to die for you too. Paid the same price for you and me as he did for anybody else. But we like to kind of think about that. And that's how these Pharisees were thinking. Look back at verse 36 and following. And it says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he, sp he spoke to him saying, This man, if he were a prophet, in other words, if he was who he says he is, would know who and what manner of woman this is who touch is touching him, for she is a sinner. See, he, he's, he's not realizing he's a sinner too. See? But it's easy to point out other people's faults, isn't it? And sometimes we forget to, to understand that. See, the point is not that they needed more forgiveness. They both needed that. They both needed to be forgiven. And that's what we should, as Christians, realize. We've been forgiven. And that is what sets us apart. But that doesn't mean that we should look down on anyone else. We should go to them and, and, and try to show them that Jesus loves them. You know, as you go and talk to people, I've, had to, I've actually had people say this to me many times. You know, as we're talking about this idea of, of the sin and how, what sins are bad and what sins are good. <laughs> you ever had this discussion with somebody? Well, at least I never killed anybody. You ever had somebody say that to you? I have literally had somebody say that. I never killed anybody. Well, did you? How about the Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Mount pretty much points out that if you think badly about someone in your heart, that you've killed them, you've committed murder. <laughs> See, Jesus points that out. It, it's not, it's, Jesus makes things difficult. You ever notice that? If you're even thinking like that, it's wrong. That's why we're told to take every thought captive, you see. And so we, we can't sit there and say, well, I've never killed anybody. Because I'll bet you, again, I can't speak for everybody here, but I'm pretty sure at some time or another, you've probably thought some pretty bad stuff about people. I know I have. You see, so sin is a concept that you got to get a hold of. It's not based on what other somebody else does. It's based on what you do. And each of us have seen at some point. But that's not who we're supposed to be. That's the point of this ver these verses in Ephesians. We're not supposed to be there. That's not where we're supposed to be living because we've been rescued from that. And so it's contrary to who we are to sin. 
You see that? It's a failure. It's a, it's a reversal back to the old nature as opposed to who you are. And that's an important thought. See, the church is, is uh, Jesus' idea. <laughs> it, we didn't make it up. Jesus thought of it himself, and Jesus established it himself. And so, if we're alive with Christ, we will walk with Christ for eternity. And it goes on here in Ephesians. And it, and it talks about this idea. It says, I'm going to just read 4 to, to 7. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the age to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so it talks about the idea of our future. Each individual must come to accept his graceful offer. You have been saved. And you know what? You can reject grace. It's not, it, the offer is universal. But you have to accept it. If you don't accept it, if you don't understand the idea that you need to hear the word, believe the word, repent, be baptized, follow Jesus. If you don't understand those things, then you're not getting the idea that you got to make a decision to follow him. You don't just go to heaven because Jesus died. Matter of fact, that's going to upset God quite a bit if you, if you walk and trample on Jesus' blood. you gotta, you got to accept that gift. That's what it says in Hebrews, you know. You can trample the blood of Christ under your feet. And so we, we accept him on his terms with understanding that we are his people. But the interesting thing here is that it says, and he raised us up together. And who is that? Who, who, is the, who's, who am I going to be together with? His body. This church. The people that are sitting right next to you. You look around and they're going to be there in the kingdom of God if they've, if they've followed Christ and accepted his offer. You see that? It's us together. It, that is who Jesus is coming back for. If we look over in uh, Revelation, and I'm going to turn to Revelation 22, uh, verse 16 and 17. It says, I, Jesus, have set my... My I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. In the churches, notice that. He sent my angel to testify these things to churches. Then it goes on. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Who's the bride? The church is the bride. He spoke it through the churches, and, and the Spirit and the Bride, the church says, come. Okay? 
The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And so Jesus makes an offer. The water of life, eternal life, is offered to us, and we have to make a choice whether we're going to accept it or not. So we're sitting with the saints today. As we sit here, those that will also be with us in glory, and many of our our loved ones have gone before and millions before that. And they're going to be there, and we're going to be there with them. (coughs) And the thing is, is, as we go through life, we begin to realize just how graceful God is in sending His Son. You know, think about the many ways that God shows His grace to us. He he takes care of us. He, he, he does take care of us. But think about the fact that he sends his son. And his son gives us comfort in this life. It doesn't just happen in eternity, but he, he walks with us now. He teaches us now. He instructs us now. He gives us fellowship. He gives us friends. He gives us the ability to have empathy for other people. He he's cares about us. Christ's kindness and grace toward us are not just in the future. Do you, are you experiencing his grace now? Are you, are you taking time to realize how, how kind and, and benevolent and, and good God is towards us in this life? Now, he, he changes us. He changes us into something very great. We, we're a new creation, as it says in, in 2 Corinthians 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Are we experiencing that? You know, or are we realizing that his grace is working in our lives now? That the old things are behind, the new life is before us. And believe me, I understand the struggles of, of the world. Paul wrote in a world that was in turmoil, just as bad as the world we live in. Just maybe worse. We don't know. We weren't there. But we know from history that there were some awful, horrible things going on, and we know that there's some struggles going on in our world today, all around the world. And, and it's, it's heartbreaking when you really pay attention. But we're a new creation. We know that we can go forward. We know that we can overcome those things. So Paul, in a world that was pagan and hostile and cruel, wrote this in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I hope that we see that in our own life. To live is is Christ. What does that mean? It means you have opportunities now that Christ brings. To die is gain. And what's the gain? To be in his presence in the kingdom of God. So let's stand.